Yeah, I grew up in Cleveland. And it was a big car town. We made Chevys and Fords, huge factories. And my dad only drove Chevrolets. He was a GM booster. So I grew up with the idea of GM being, and in fact, at that time, the great American company that makes cars for America. Everybody in America drives a GM or something like it. Well, guess what? China has become the top sales market for General Motors, the iconic American automaker owned... By who? By the U.S. taxpayers. If somebody had told me when I was driving around in my dad's 1947, you know, Chevrolet Coupe that someday China would be buying more of these and us folks in the Buckeye State, well, I would have had myself a chuckle. Through the first six months of this year, GM and its Chinese joint venture partners have sold 1.21 million vehicles in China, the company announced. Recently, its U.S. sales came in at 1.08. So we only get the silver, and probably soon, the bronze. GM's Chinese auto sales are growing at a blistering pace, up 48.5% over the first half of the year. I know, when I was in Beijing, mainly in Beijing, but also in Shanghai, everybody in the party was driving a black Buick. So there's a lot of people in the party, and they're selling a lot of black Buicks. GM's U.S. sales are also showing improvement, enough to keep its U.S. plants operating during what would normally be a summer shutdown, and that's good news, but the growth is a far more modest 15% in the first half of the year. And it ain't lasting. Car sales are down as people lose jobs. Uh, construction's down 20%, so the construction workers can't go out and buy them fine new trucks. So there you go. So there are some market dynamics beyond one's control, said Don Johnson, GM's new vice president of U.S. sales operations. You know, a lot of these execs now have these really kind of vanilla names, Don Johnson. I wonder if, they've, if he's maybe a robot. Certainly, what's working on a weekend to a robot. Personally, he says, and how can a robot say personally, I think that's a good thing that China's growth is helping GM. Our China operation will always play an important role in our company, but fundamentally, we're a U.S. company and will always be a U.S. company. Uh Uh-oh. When they say things like, that's ominous. Whenever a CEO says something like this, it will always be, et cetera, et cetera. It usually means that other plans are afoot. GM moves to Shanghai. Years of ongoing losses in its home market and a sharp plunge right, in sales uh, starting in 2008 caused the company, GM, to file for bankruptcy. And during its reorganization, it shed plants, workers, dealerships, and much of its debt owed to bondholders. That was nice. It emerged with the help of a $50 billion bailout from U.S. taxpayers. Yeah, when I drive through the the Northwest here uh, on like on five, more than once you go by these closed car dealerships, GM, Ford, Chrysler, whatever, just shuttered these huge lots with with, with the sale signs still up, you know, August bang them out sale, twice for half and more, and there's just nobody there. See our salesman in the back. <laughs> there's nothing in the back but coyotes. GM's ability to pay back that bailout will depend upon its planned sale of stock to the public later this year or early next year. That's going to be a tough sale. The value of its Chinese operations is expected to be a significant part of the value of that stock when it hits the market. We're GM. We're China. So we have to bet on China to get our $50 billion back. Hmm. Makes you wonder. 34th Street. 34th Street could surely use a miracle. I could use a small one myself. A miracle is something you meet 
halfway. On the corner of 34th Street, there's some young rappers hawking their homemade CDs, telling everybody that their stuff was real and representing. Now, real and representing is kind of elusive these days. And further down the street, there's three Asian ladies with bright, bright, bright yellow T-shirts to say Reverend Park, they're telling us we have to go see him. So when we do, we get a one-way ticket to heaven when we leave the building. And further down the street, the guys show up with the $5 Chanel smells. And as I keep walking, comes the folks with the $125 designer handbag, just $19.95. But they spot us, buys the cops, and they scoot. And then I notice a gigantic concrete flower pot with five little beautiful flowers growing and giant, giant leaves. I go closer and closer and closer to the leaves, blocking out the street like a kid who goes underneath his covers with a flashlight, trying to discover the underground. Everybody else is shopping, moving fast, walking, wondering where it is, even though they know they came in with it. This one from The Gray Lady. It was only one paragraph buried deep in the most plain vanilla kind of diplomatic document, 40 pages of dry language committing a 189 nations to a world free of nuclear weapons. But it has become the latest source of friction between Israel and the United States in a relationship that has lurched from crisis to crisis over the last few months. At a meeting to review the Nuclear Non-Proliferation Treaty in May, the United States yielded to demands by Arab nations that the final document urge Israel to sign the treaty, a way of spotlighting its historically undeclared nuclear weapons. Israel believed it had assurances from the Obama administration that it would reject efforts to include such a reference, an Israeli official said, and it saw this as another sign of unreliability by its most important ally. In a recent visit to Washington, Israel's defense minister, Ehud Barak, raised the issue in meetings with senior American officials. What I want to know is just why Israel won't cop to a fact that is widely known. They've had nukes for years, and they threw a guy in jail who blew the whistle. What are they hiding, and how long are we supposed to support this obvious deception? Some analysts said the nuclear proliferation issue symbolizes why Israel remains insecure about the intentions of the Obama administration. It also may be why surrounding neighbors uh, of Israel's remain insecure about their intentions. In addition to singling out Israel, the document, which has captured relatively little public attention, calls for a regional conference in 2012 to lay the groundwork for a nuclear-free zone in the Middle East. A good idea, huh? Israel, whose nuclear arsenal is one of the world's worst-kept secrets, would be on the hot seat at such a meeting. Yes, a hot seat upon which they deserve. Maybe we can just get things going. What about a nuclear-free Near East? Isn't that a very good idea? At the last review conference in 2005, the Bush administration refused to go along with any references to Israel, one of several reasons the meeting ended in acrimony without any statement. 
This time, Israel believed the Obama administration would again take up its cause. As a non-signatory to the treaty, Israel did not attend the meeting, but American officials consulted the Israelis on a text in advance, which they found acceptable. A person familiar with those discussions said that deepened their surprise at the end. The United States, American officials said, faced a hard choice. Refusing to compromise with the Arab states on Israel would have sunk the entire review conference. Given the emphasis that Mr. Obama has placed on nonproliferation, the United States could not accept such an outcome. It also would complicate the administration's attempt to build bridges to the Arab world, an effort that is at the heart of some of the disagreements between the United States and Israel. Israel's not happy with Barack Obama because Barack Obama, by no means an anti-Zionist and certainly not an anti-Semite, just isn't going to go along with an unreal and unproductive relationship. Wrong. Cause while they make their speech, I keep on singing my song. I'm making speech. 